This is Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is the Ave Explorers Lenten mini series. the first full week of Lent is always 10 times harder than the first few days of the Lenten season. Because like everyone's excited about Ash Wednesday because, you know, you go home with a prize, dirt on your forehead, and then you've got Meat Thursday. So everybody kind of gorges themselves again on all the meat that they had to fast from on Wednesday and that they know that they have to fast from on Friday. Then you have the first Friday of Lent and the first big parish fish fry and the first Stations of the Cross of the year. You've got the weekend and Sunday, if you break the fast on Sunday, as some people do, and then you launch yourself into the first full week of Lent. And, you know, in the church's wisdom, that first Sunday of Lent, we usually read the story of the temptation of Christ, who's out in the desert doing essentially what we're doing, right? Spending 40 days in intense prayer and preparation for his public ministry, And us during Lent, spending 40 days praying and fasting and and looking for ways to be more generous. And during those 40 days, how often are we tempted in much the same way that Jesus is? Tempted to give up our fast, tempted to take the easy way out, tempted to seek worldly accolades because it'd be far easier than just doing the things that we have committed ourselves to doing. In the midst of all of that, I feel like this first full week of Lent then is really where the rubber meets the road, where things maybe start to get really challenging, where we start to really feel ourselves be stretched. And one of my favorite things to always tell my students was virtue grows when we're stretched. It grows when we, we kind of hit the edge of where we think we can go, when we're stretched to our limits, when we're, when we're pushed to our capacity, when we find ourselves saying, I can't do it. That's precisely the moment where virtue is, is really developed and formed as a habit within us, and, and we are able to do it. In the midst of all that, though, as we're talking about this difficult week, and as we're talking about these temptations, and as we talk about this fast that we've all adopted for our Lenten season, there's also a, a very ever-present kind of looming reality that we're not walking through the desert because we're bored. We're not walking through the desert because we have nothing better to do. We're walking through the desert because we're headed towards Calvary. We're headed towards the cross. These 40 days in the desert are not a vacation on a sandy beach, but a time of of spiritual preparedness because we are readying ourselves to stand at the foot of the cross and remember and reflect upon and, and be grateful for the most life-altering moment in human history when Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and for me. So Lent, then, isn't just a, a diet plan. I don't just give up sweets because I want to lose a few pounds. It's not just a, a program so that I, I appreciate the rosary more by the end of the 40 days. And it's certainly not just a chance for me to be more generous so I can get a tax write-off at the end of the year. It's it's a preparation for the cross, to carry the cross, to stand at the foot of the cross, to proclaim the cross. And I think that, that gives us the opportunity then to really think about maybe those moments in our life where we have known the cross really well. Maybe there was a, an intense tragedy within our family. Someone got sick or, or somebody lost a job or, or our, our family home was, was taken or, or whatever the situation may be. 
big or small, tragedies strike many of us every single day, and, and we, we walk through those tragedies. We go through those dark valleys, and sometimes we feel like God is by our side, and sometimes we feel completely alone. I always think back to when Hurricane Rita hit my hometown in 2005. I was a 16-year-old junior in high school, and I got really mad at God and didn't understand how a good God could allow such intense suffering. And, like, that was the worst thing that had happened to me in my life up to that point. And it still is very much a marker for me in my life of a, of a Calvary moment where it felt like I was alone on the cross. I think a lot of us all have these stories, these stories that we can share, these stories that we can relate to. And today uh, we have a guest on the show that has not only a, a powerful story of, of carrying her own cross, but living the stations of the cross through her journey, living the stations of the cross um, through her, her, her disease, through her illness, through her recovery, um, and now sharing not just about her story of, of being sick, but about her her story of, of learning to meet Jesus and falling in love with Jesus and, and recognizing the value and the beauty and the gift of the cross in the midst of that. Emily Diardo um, is a, a bright light, both on Catholic Twitter, if you happen to surf the internet and see her tweets there, um, and within the publishing world, she's written a brand new book just out this season from Ave Maria Press, and it's a great name, Living Memento Mori, My Journey Through the Stations of the Cross. Emily really does have a, a profound story of, of walking the Stations of the Cross in a really unique way through her battle with cystic fibrosis um, as, a, as a child and into adulthood and, and then receiving the gift of a lung transplant. And she's, she tells this story and she talks about what it was like. She talks about the crosses that she carried in the midst of it and how we can carry our cross all year round, but especially pay attention to it during the season of Lent. You can, of course, grab Emily's book and all the other Ave Maria Press Lenten titles over at AveMariaPress.com. And remember to use the code EXPLORELENT to get 25% off and free shipping of your whole order. Um, so with that kind of lead-in and introduction, I hope that you enjoy this conversation, this chat with my friend and author, Emily Diardo. Well, Emily, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Emily, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you from Catholic Twitter um, and from your new book. Uh, but but for those who might not or for those who, who are new to the Emily Diardo scene, who are you? What are you doing? <laughs> Where are you? Um, just kind of give us the rundown. Okay. Um, I live outside of Columbus, Ohio, in a suburb called Pickerington. And um, I've lived in this area my entire life. Um I have a younger brother and a younger sister. Um, my parents are originally from Pittsburgh, so we are all Pittsburgh sports fans. <laughs> um, I graduated from um, Capital University, which is a small private college um, here in town, and I majored in political science and English literature. And um, after that, I graduated, I worked for the um, Ohio Senate for 10 years. Wow. So, yeah, so um, in varying places in the Senate. Um, and then in um, 2005, I had a double lung transplant um, as a result of um, advanced cystic fibrosis, which is a um, genetic disease that mostly affects your lungs and your digestive system. So um, 
I had my transplant in 2005 and um, my first book just came out. So that, yeah. that's a pretty good summary. Yeah. So working for the Senate, major surgery, new book. <laughs> There's, there's some big jumps there. I want to kind of get into the weeds of, um, so tell me when you, you obviously had lived with cystic fibrosis for a very long time before the double lung transplant. I forgive my ignorance. The really, the only thing I know about the disease is that you can't be around other cystic fibrosis patients because it's highly contagious. Uh, and I know that from a movie and I hate to admit that, but that's really kind of the only way that I know that. Um, tell us a little bit about what that was like prior to the transplant. Um, how the day-to-day existence was, what was really hard about that. Okay. Um, yeah, it's actually the, the rule. It's um, five feet or six feet apart, mm-hmm. uh, which was the movie title. Right, right. <laughs> I think. Um, that really came into play um, only a couple years after I was diagnosed. Before that, we had, you know, CF camps, and you could, you know, but then we realized that there are certain bugs that only the CF population kind of culture, and it's very dangerous to us, but not to the general population. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, in my first hospitalization, like I was playing with another kid who had CF, it was no big deal. But then after that, it was like, no, stay away. Mm-hmm. Um, so a day with, um, with CF, I... Um, well, I was actually diagnosed at age 11, which is really late. Uh, most people are diagnosed when they're little kids, or now, I mean, they're diagnosed right after birth. Um, so I was late to that party. Um, so you started each morning with um, what we called therapy, which was you do um, inhaled medications to open up your airways, um, sometimes antibiotics to you know, help you fight whatever crud was in your lungs that day and then you did um what's called postural drainage therapy which is basically someone either had to pound on your chest in 12 various positions or you had to put on um something that looks like a lifesaver vest thing and hook it up to a machine um and sort of shake for you know varying amounts of time so i did that every morning and every evening, um, you take various, you know, oral medications, um, enzymes to help you digest your food. Because one thing CF does is it affects um, the release of, you know, those enzymes from your pancreas. Um, and that was pretty much it on, you know, a normal day-to-day basis. Um, sometimes we were doing home IVs which meant, you know, three or four times a day, we would push various things and, um, you know, wake up at 2 a.m. and do that. Um, so, you know, it was, it was obviously a lot in the beginning, but, you know, eventually it just became sort of like, this is what we do. Um, I had a tendency to get really weird bugs and get really sick really fast. So um, my sophomore year of college, you know, I spent two weeks in the ICU in a medically induced coma while we figured out what was wrong with me. Um, and so by the end of my senior year of college, my doctors were saying, all right, we have to get you listed for lung transplant because you've got like 19% lung function and we can't, that, that's just not cutting it. So um, I was 
which did in May of 2005, and then I had my transplant in July of 2005. Wow. Is that pretty fast? That's very fast, especially since I have a rare blood type. I'm AB mm-hmm. positive. Oh, wow. Uh, and I was kind of small. I was only like 5'2". So we needed like smallish lungs with a rare blood type. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And a miracle occurred in some sense. Right, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I, I got really lucky. So the transplant happens. That's a massive recovery. What was that like, post-transplant life? I mean, you can't immediately go run a marathon. Like, there's some time. Right, right. Um, well, you know, transplant's interesting because you have to be sick enough to need a transplant. Right. But you have to be healthy enough to survive a transplant. Right, um, right. So um, it's, it's sort of this weird tightrope. Um, I was actually the first transplant in my center um, here in town. So my transplant was at Nationwide Children's Hospital. So um, I was in the hospital for about a month after. And most people joined like a week, mm-hmm. two weeks. Um, but it, it was about, it was about a month because I also um, burned my arm an IV infiltrated during surgery and created some issues <laughs> with my right arm. So we, that sort of added to the recovery. Um, but yeah, I mean, first they have to figure out the right amount of immunosuppression. They have to, um, figure out, you know, the different doses of medications you're on, get that all calibrated. And then things like, you know, you get up and walk, and you, you know, they'd have things on the schedule like, okay, you're going to sit for two hours in a chair today. It's just like, oh, goody. And you're thinking, you know, I'm a college graduate. Right. And like, today I'm practicing sitting in a chair. Yeah, so, yeah. So um, you do a lot of what's called pulmonary rehab, which is just um, treadmill, bike, weights, things like that um, with physical therapists to, you know, help build up your body. And... Um, I couldn't go back to work for a couple months because you're not allowed to drive mm-hmm. for about three to four months because the drugs mess with your mm-hmm. you know, reaction times and cognitive abilities. So, um, you know, towards the end, I was going a little stir crazy. Little nuts. Um, but yeah, my, my recovery wasn't too bad. Yeah. So I was lucky there too. Yeah, yeah. So it really kind of sounds like you knew suffering. I mean, face to face, like you, you experienced, um, a bit of a tomb there, both with the the treatments for cystic fibrosis. I can only imagine what it's like as a high school student to not be able to do all the things that your friends can do, um, or to not participate in stuff because like, nope, that's a day that I've got to go into the hospital for treatment or, or no, like that could expose me to something that could make me much sicker than it would you, you know, like a common cold can take you out kind of thing. Right. Um, what was that like? I mean, that there's there's the the day to day like this is what I have to do to survive, but then that takes a toll on your mental health. And and we just did a series on mental health, and so that's obviously something that's important right. to talk about. But 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 how did that how did that affect your faith? How did that affect affect your outlook on life and and your perspective of self? Um, when I was in high school, it was more. Um, dealing with other people's perceptions Mm. of what I could do versus what I could actually do. So people would assume things about me, but they wouldn't directly ask me, can you do this? Is this okay? It was more like, well, we're going to just assume you can't do this. Mm. 
And so, you know, that led to exclusion, which was, which was hard because, you know, yeah, I might've needed some sort of accommodation, but you know, I could, at that point, I could still do quite a few things. Um, you know, it really got hard in college because, you know, my friends wanted to do things like, you know, stay up late and, you know, party. And I mean, not that we were political science geeks. We didn't know yeah. really <laughs> most people were. Um, but, you know, it was still like, I can't. And, you know, at, at that time, I was kind of stupid. And I thought, I'm going to be normal, dad, nab it. And I'm going to do what everybody else is doing. And, you know, that eventually took, took a physical toll. But, you know, it was like, it was either that or the emotional sense of, I want to do what my friends were doing. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't do anything stupid, like, you know, smoke. Um, right. <laughs> you know, it was like, okay, I want to do these things and be involved in these things and still have a life, but, you know, not do things that were going to be terribly detrimental to my health. Yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, as you get sicker, you have people who are like, we can't deal with that. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, people don't want to be around people who... You know, might die on them. Right. Um, right. So, you know, that that got harder, and I was very lucky that I had and still have, you know, really good friends who could deal with it, but not everybody could. Yeah. Um, as far as, you know, how it affected my my faith, um, you know, I went to Catholic school, K-8. Um, you know, both my parents are, um, are Catholic, um, so, you know, there was a strong, um, faith sort of bedrock, um, in the beginning. And then as I got older and I went to public high school and I actually went to Lutheran college, um, <laughs> my faith grew because I chose to learn it for myself, mm-hmm. you know, why I believe what I believe, um, because I was on the debate team and, you know, people would ask, you know, well, Catholics worship Mary and, you know, all these sorts of questions. And so it sort of forced me to go deeper into my own faith. Um, in terms of how, you know, CF affected my faith in terms of like suffering, um, we, you know, it was never a big, it was never a thing where I felt like, you know, why is this happening to me? And, I, you know, not that I'm like a saint or anything, but that just never really crossed my mind. I probably because, you know, I always knew that Jesus had, you know, suffered and he was perfect. You know, Mary obviously suffered. Um, you know, we have a devotion to um, Elizabeth Ann Seton in our family. And, you know, she said, you know, do you really expect to go through life without suffering? Like, right, right. So, um, you know, that wasn't something where where I, you know, felt like God was, you know, being mean to me. Um, there were definitely times where I was like, God, okay, I'm done with this year. Like, <laughs> I want to know the plan. I would like a burning bush in my bedroom right now. Um, because patience is not, you know, one of my strong suits. So, and there was definitely that sense of, I know God's in charge, but I would really like to know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a... I imagine there's a lot of, of feeling like you cannot control the situation. Like, especially, I mean, even though you were only on the transplant list for a couple of months, it's still like you're, you're waiting, you know, or like oh, yeah. a medication is, is prescribed and you're waiting to see if it's going to work. Or are you one of those people that it's not going to work for? Um, 
or, you know, you do have those friends that kind of come into your life and there's that, okay, are they going to stick around or is this going to be too difficult? Right. For them? You know, that's a, that's an element of chronic illness that I've, I've heard many people talk about that it, it's hard for people to accommodate someone and think, oh, well, if they're not going to be around, then it's probably not worth it to accommodate them, which is a horrible perspective right. to have. And especially uh, it's a horrible to be on the receiving end of that. Um, because that that's a, it's a rejection of who you are and it's a seeing you as, as your illness, not you as somebody who just has the illness. Right. Um, and you know, that was always very important to me. I never led with that mm -hmm. in a sense. It was never like, I'm Emily Giardo and I have CF. It was, you know, I would tell people when they needed to know. Yeah. Like, you know, if, you know, obviously when I was in the hospital for two weeks, my professors had to know right. that I wasn't, you know, dropping out um you know with um with friends it, it took me a while to tell them you know I kind of had to feel them out and be like all right are you mm -hmm. like you know can we can we do this or not um dating is I imagine yeah <laughs> um, so yeah it, it is a very personal sense of rejection because it's like I can't change who I am but some people just can't. They can't deal. They can't deal with it. And so, you know, I try not to be, I try not to take that personally because it's yeah. like, and it doesn't always work. But right, right, yeah. Because yeah. It is a, that, that's a unique form of the suffering that, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily have experienced in my own life. I mean, I've experienced rejection in some sense. Of course, right. I think all people have, but that's a very, that's a very unique form of it because it's not your fault that you have the disease, but yet right. it's your fault that you have the disease. So therefore I'm going to hold you at arm's length and not get close to you. That, yeah. that concept of, of suffering, that's kind of where I, where I want to head next. So this was very much a, a tomb that you lived in um, for a while. And even though you're, you're 15 years removed from a transplant, I imagine there's still things that you have to deal with and complications that you have to struggle with and, and focuses that you have to kind of put on your health and on your well-being. Um, right. That's what, that's what your book's about. So your book, um, which the title is? It's Living Memento Mori, My Journey Through the Stations of Cross. Great. So that book, um, your first book, your debut book with Ave Maria Press. So welcome to the Ave family. Um, Thank you. You really, you, you walk through this, you talk about this, you, you tell us stories, you pray with us, you, you essentially kind of give us an inside look into what it's like to not only live with a chronic illness, but to, to kind of walk day by day with anybody who might be struggling with anything, um, whether it's chronic right. illness, whether it's the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, just depression and anxiety from a, from a daily perspective. Right. So tell us a little bit about kind of where this book idea came from, um, what your hopes are for the book, uh, some, maybe some stories that you've heard from people who've read it. Um, I kind of always had the idea to write something about my experience with, with CF and with transplant mm -hmm. because, you know, I, I'm a crazy reader and there was nothing on the market that spoke to the experience of, you know, living with CF in, in a positive way. So it was like, you really had like two books. You had the ones who were written by the parents and their child is dead. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with, with that perspective or it was written by, a person with CF, but that person is now dead. So they're, and they always ended with someone being dead. And it was, you know, it was like, okay, this is not, 
you know, not just my experience, but, you know, when people, when I would tell people I had CF, they always thought, I mean, this was the 90s, so this is going to date me here. But people are like, oh, like on ER, where, like, the person died. And it's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was never this, um, everybody's experience with it was always, oh, I know so-and-so who had it, and now they're dead. It's like, okay, thank you. So I always wanted to write something that was a little more, a beat. <laughs> um, and, you know, I definitely wanted to put my faith in it because I, I think that's just a main reason that I'm not, you know, curled up in a ball on the floor of my bedroom all the time. Um, so there really wasn't like anything like that in the market. And um, when I sent my book proposal to Ave, my editor said, you know, why don't, why don't we do this based on the Stations of the Cross? And at first I was like, I had never thought of that idea, but it made more and more sense the more I thought about it. Um, because, you know, you really, it really did kind of slot neatly mm. into those, you know, 14 stations. So that idea was actually my, my editor's idea. Um, and when it came to writing it, um, I, there were, it was, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't put in any embarrassing family stories or, you know, um, you know humiliate any of my relatives. Um, yeah, I did put in stories of, of people who had really, had been helpful and had served, you know, as Simon or Veronica or, you know, Mary or any of those, you know, people in, in the passionate accounts to me because, um, you know, I believe in giving credit where credit is due. And um, those people had really, you know, helped in so many ways that probably they didn't think were important. But, you know, in, in the grander scheme of things, you know, it was really important. Like, um, you know, in Chapter 5, I talk about visiting New York City on New Year's Eve with a bunch of college friends. It's one of those things you do as a college student, right? right. You think, let's go to New York for New Year's with like, you know, eight people in a hotel room. And, um, you know, the, everybody wanted to go up to the top of the Empire State Building and they didn't want to wait for the elevators. Mm. And I was like, well, I mean, I didn't want to lose my friends. And I thought, okay, I guess I'll just climb up. And that didn't go very well. Um, you know, at one point I stopped and one of my friends realized that I wasn't with them and he actually came back down picked me up and carried me all the way up to the top. Wow. And, you know, that's something I never would have thought of asking anyone to do. And he just did it. So I mean, that was, you know, that was incredibly important to me to realize that, you know, there are people who saw need and responded, even if it was, you know, not like, you know, this huge gesture, it was just, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's beautiful to, to think about. And I think that that ties very perfectly really into Lent of it's not often the big grand gestures that get us through the 40 days of Lent. It's the daily, the small moments of recognizing that person's in need, or, you know, I can say that extra prayer, or I can be a little more generous in this particular moment, or I can, I can make this very simple sacrifice, whether it's, I'm just going to have water today, or I'm going to take the the five bucks that I would have spent at Starbucks and I'll, I'll go put it on a gift card and give it to the next homeless person I see. Um, You know, that, that those small kind of, so let's, so let's shift then to, so living memento mori, first of all, that phrase memento mori to those who don't know, what does it mean? 
it means um, remember that you will die or remember your death. Remember your death. And it's very popular right now on Catholic yeah. Twitter. Um, Sister Teresa Alethea uh, kind of made it popular, I think, um, with her, her daily reflections. And then she wrote a book for Lent. Um, and then it kind of caught wildfire within the Catholic world of, well, wait a second, we're all called to remember our death. And we're all called to have a skull on our desk. And we're all called right. to, to walk around, not with a grim attitude of, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die, but this, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Like, what am I doing in this life now? And I, I think Lent, those 40 days in the desert, um, are a unique opportunity to think about that. So your, your book is perfect for Lent and we highly recommend it. But just speaking about Lent in general, what do you always like to do? Like, what, what is your normal Lent like? Uh, um, well, you know, it's interesting for me because before my lung transplant, um, I was not allowed fast. I mean, like, absolutely forbidding. Um, you know, when I got my transplant, I weighed, like, 85 pounds. So yeah. they were like, you are not allowed to skip You meals. have to eat, yeah. <laughs> you must eat. Um, you know, the abstinence part well, for me wasn't hard because, you know, I like fish. Um, but um, I wasn't allowed to fast. And then after transplant, for a while, I was. And that was, like, really hard for me. It was, like... Oh my gosh. Cause I, you know, I didn't have these like years of practice. It was just like, okay, now I get to fast and it's hard. Um, and I'm actually not allowed now because, um, I have a special type of like CF related diabetes. And so you're not allowed to fast because mm-hmm. again, food is important. Right. Right. So what I normally do for Lent is, um, I always give up buying things that I don't need. Um, definitely books, which is hard for me because <laughs> I love a good bookstore trip. So um, I do that. And I'm also a lay Dominican. So I try to say um, we're, we are tasked with saying at least morning and evening prayer from the mm. the hours. So during Lent, I try to throw in another one of the hours, either nice. um, night prayer or office readings. Um well, and this is this is a perfect example of of doing during Lent instead right. of just you know the first episode with Deacon Greg Kandra was all about giving up starts with giving. So how can we be more intentional with our time? So adding that extra liturgy of the hours, or um, I mean, giving up online shopping is always what I do. I, I delete Amazon from my phone, and that's a hard one because not like our subscription things, like the diapers still come and and the, well, that's good. and the cereal boxes still arrive, but. But, you know, like the frivolous purchases that you don't even realize you've made. Right. And every year, I not only do I have more money in my bank account at the end of the 40 days, but I'm also, I'm shocked with how, how much junk I clutter my life with. I know. And, and Lent can really be that perfect moment to, to shine that light. Um, to to kind of continue on that through line, what, what would you say... For those people who may be like, so when this episode airs, it'll be the second full week of Lent, I think. Okay. The, the first full week of Lent, I'll put it that way, because we've got um, we've got an episode for Ash Wednesday, and then we'll have your episode. So, so people are just getting started, and in the same way that like with a New Year's resolution, we go in guns blazing, like I'm gonna I'm gonna give up all the sodas, and I'm gonna give up all the Netflix, and I'm gonna only listen to Catholic things on the radio, which I think that would get boring pretty quickly, despite the fact that I mostly just listen to Catholic things. Um, don't give up this podcast, everybody. Keep listening to this one. But, but for that person who who needs that little bit of uh, encouragement, you know, your your two very, your ideas are very very practical. But what would be kind of your 
you're punching the arm to them. You're encouragement to those people who want to have a good Lent. Uh, I think, you know, the first thing is to remember that you really just have to live it, you know, kind of day by day Mm. and don't think about, Oh my gosh, it's 40 days. I can't do it because, um, you know, it's so easy to get overwhelmed and think, you know, I'm never going to be able to do that. I, I remember when we did, you know, we would do IV therapy and it was either two weeks or three weeks. It depended on, you know, how things were going. And if you started thinking, oh my gosh, we have to do this for a whole month, it was just so demoralizing. Um, so, you know, really just take it, you know, one day at a time and, and focus on it that way. And the other thing is, um, I'm a big C.S. Lewis fan, and um, he wrote in, in one of his, his great books that if you think of Earth as a place for training and correction, it's not too bad. Like, if you think that Earth is just going to be this wonderful pleasure palace, you're going to be disappointed. But if you focus on it being training and correction for heaven, you're going to do better. And so that's sort of how I think of it is it's, you know, it's training like you would train for a 5K or, you know, if you're any sort of athlete, which I am not. Um, You know, anything you want to do that's worth doing in life requires time and it requires incremental, you know, increasing effort. So I I think those are two things that always help me when I'm looking at Lent. Yeah. That, that connection to the IV therapy is huge. Um, because it is, you can, I always like to think I can survive anything for 15 minutes. And so I think like if if I have a particularly like long flight, I just think about it in 15 minute segments. Um, or if like I'm writing a book, I think about it in terms of like, all right, every 500 words, I get a break. That's, that's how I basically survived writing every paper in college was every every couple pages. I got to watch a 30 rock episode. So that was like, so like with Lent, it's, you know, you just got to kind of, it's not that you reward yourself at the end of the day with, with the gorging on the sweets and the candy. It's, it's more a matter of at the end of the day, at the end of every day of Lent, you get to look back and think about, okay, how was that muscle of prayer strengthened today? How was that muscle of sacrifice and that muscle of generosity? Was it, was it strengthened? Was it, was it made stronger um, today? So here at the end then, Emily, um, so your book is of course available on Ave Maria Press and uh, we can find you on Twitter and the links will be down yep. in the show notes, but, but what's next for you? What's, the, what's kind of the Emily Diardo plan of attack for the future? <laughs> um, well, I will be having my, uh, my 15th transplant anniversary is in July. So that, that's you know, big Huge. deal. That's awesome. It both personally and, you know, clinically, you right. know, it's like, I 15 years, so, you know, my doctors can all be happy. Um, I don't know, actually. Um, you know, hoping to go out and, and speak about the messages in the book and, and share with the widest audience possible. Um, you know, this was this book that I always knew I had to write. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the objective was always to get that, you know, published and out there in the world. And so we'll see what God wants me to write about next. We'll find out. That's awesome. That's awesome. Open to what he has to do and living that memento mori every day. You know, it's always hard at the end of a really great conversation with someone to to try to round out the chat, to figure out a way to wrap it all up. And and this was a little bit of a longer episode because Emily had a a pretty great story to tell. But I I just, I think that the message that I really want to drive home and, and here in this first full week of Lent is that as we walk the road 
towards Calvary through this Lenten desert to pay attention to those moments of, of very much not only redemptive suffering, but that make us aware perhaps even of the suffering of others. You know, interacting with Emily on Twitter, uh, you don't know right away that she was a cystic fibrosis patient, that she suffered, that she had a double lung transplant, unless you go read her bio really closely or click on the book and go read the description on the back right away, because she's living an, an active, normal life, that she's out in the world, that she's sharing, that she's doing, that she's proclaiming the goodness of God, even though she walked through this incredibly dark valley. And she doesn't hide the dark valley. She doesn't hide the cross that she carried. She allows that cross to have been something that gave her new life. And I think that's really something worth contemplating here in this first full week of Lent. You can grab Emily's book, Living Memento Mori, My Journey Through the Stations of the Cross, over on AveMariaPress.com, as well as all the other Lenten books that Ave Maria Press offers. So far, we've chatted with Deacon Greg Kandra and Gary Zemak. Both of their books are available on the website. Coming up later on in the series, we'll have conversations with Tommy McGrady, my husband. Uh, We wrote a Lenten book for young people, for teenagers. Uh, A chat with Mary Lenneberg, whose book is not Lent-specific, but is definitely something that I think a lot of people would benefit from during the season of Lent, with my good friend Joel Stepanek and his book on humility, as well as a conversation with Father John Burns about how to really enter into the celebration of the Triduum well. So all that's coming here in this Ave Lenten mini-series, um, and we hope that you stick around, that you subscribe, that you give us a rating, that you share. And remember, for our listeners, we have this great discount code, Explore Lent, all caps. You can use it on the Ave Maria Press website to get 25% off and free shipping. So we hope you take advantage of that so you can continue to grow this Lenten season.